Welcome to Right Course with Dan Barry, conservative commentary on politics, policy, and the news from the southern Piedmont of North Carolina through the Raleigh State House into the nation's capital. To learn more about us, search the web at Right Course with Dan Barry and let us know your thoughts. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm your host, Dan Barry. Welcome to Right Course with Dan Barry. Today is August the 4th, 2020. And we're in our fourth episode. Thank you very much for those of you that are listening and have commented back. I have to admit, it has been a little bit overwhelming to put this together and to launch a podcast. I jokingly told somebody over the weekend, I'm not 18 years old and this is new technology for me. So a learning experience. What's just amazing has been the response. And I want to thank each and every one of you for that. It's not lost on me that as I share with you my passions about politics and policy and the news in North Carolina around the country, not all of you have the same level of intensity or excitement about it. I had an opportunity to participate in a conference call last night with the Heritage Foundation. I'm a sentinel with them, and that's kind of their ground game, grassroots people that are involved in the conservative movement. And as chairman, Ms. Kate K. James was on last night. And, and what a refresher it was to hear from that organization with just such passion in their voices about the work that the conservative movement is doing across the country as it confronts the far left, almost Marxist conflict with those institutions that we hold so dear. And I have said before and been challenged about it, those of us on the right, those of us who are conservatives, see this time and this place in our communities across our state and in our country almost as though we are at war for the very nature of our society. And those conservative institutions which we have built over generations, and those of us on the right really look at this election as an opportunity to confront those factions within our society that want to destroy that which is normal, the nuclear family unit, freedom of the press, freedom to live our lives as though as as we want to within the construct of the civil union that exists between the individual and our government. And let's remember the foundation of that government, which is the Constitution of the United States doesn't give people rights. We, the people, grant to the government or surrender to the government that which the government has an obligation to deliver, and that's to protect us. And over time, the government has has usurped more and more and more of those rights from the people. I recall Rush Limbaugh talking about the nanny state, that government has taken on more and more responsibility to deliver goods and services to the people, goods and services that we, the individual, are responsible for delivering for ourselves. And the more that we control in our own lives, the more we use our God-given talents to, to control our lives and to deliver a result for our families. Inherent in that is that we have to have the ability and the willingness to give back to our communities. And so if we can't get mad at the government for taking on things, if we're unwilling as members of society to say, we have enjoyed some successes, some successes from the fruits of our labor, 
we're going to give back. We're going to participate in the body politic. Doesn't matter whether you're dog catcher or soil and water conservation or you're a participant in your PTA or you teach Sunday school or involved in your church. If you're involved in something, you're involved in the body politic. And it's important that all of us stand up and communicate to our friends and our families and our neighbors how passionate we are and to get passionate about the way we live our lives and the, and the desire that we have that we don't want the government telling us what to do. We want to tell the government what it may do. And it's just really, really important that we kind of continue that battle cry and, and look to the elected leaders that represent the conservatives and Republicans to say, hey, stand up and fight. This is important and we need to do that. I had a conversation last week with a member of the North Carolina Senate, and I had posted something on Facebook, and I said, just fight. We just want you to fight. And he said, fight about what? We keep losing. It's okay to lose. Just engage. Today, a friend of mine had a post on Facebook, and it's a scene of one of the early battle scenes in Braveheart, one of my favorite movies. They're firing up extras, if you will, which were military officers in Great Britain, frankly, uh, for the battle scene. And it's just fantastic for him to see him just challenging the people and the scriptwriter saying, you know, you can you can live under the with the scraps from the table of government, or you can take control of your life and take control of the society that you live in by engaging in the body of politic. And that those are my words, not the words from the movie, of course. But that's why I'm so passionate about it, because I know that conservative principles, conservative ideals, when implemented into public policy, change lives, and they preserve the nuclear family and advance the cause of freedom and liberty. Inherent in that contract is that we reach down and lift folks up, not hold them up and not hold them down, but lift them out. Lift them up. So those that are on the lowest rung of the economic ladder that feel left behind, we need to embrace them, show them the the core beliefs of the conservative movement and how they can have the American dream. It's an exciting time because as I launched the podcast in my my websites and blogs, some 15,000 emails went out asking folks to join. And I ask that you share it as well and comment. Share on your social media accounts and make comments. If you think I am out in left field, say it. I'm out in left field. I'll I'll track you down and I'll respond. But we have to do it in civil discourse. And we have to do it in a way that brings respect and honor with statesmanship. One of the emails I got back or responses I got back over the weekend was, Dan, you are fascinated by American history and you, and you love it so much. Why don't you think of a way to drill into your podcast just little snippets about what happened in American history. And so I called the individual, and we had a quick conversation about it. And he said, look, you're on episode four. Why don't you look at the fourth year of American history? And so we were off. So this is our fourth episode. So we'll look at the fourth year of American history. We'll start with 1780. So what are a couple of things that might have happened in 1780 that are significant that we should remember in American history? First is... We all probably remember the great traitor, Benedict Arnold. 1780 was when Benedict Arnold gave the plans and tried to give away the fort at West Point 
to the British. Later, he was run out of town as a result. Two really, really revolutionary war events occurred as well in 1780. Around our community here in Charlotte or in Gastonia, Gaston County and Mecklenburg County, we all educated in in the 7th and 8th grade about what? The Battle of King's Mountain. It's where the mountain men came in and routed the king's army and ran them off the mountain. Huge early victory or huge victory during the Revolutionary War where, as Cornwallis said, that group of rabble ran the British regulars out of our community. Probably one of the most significant events in 1780 from a long-term historic perspective was the arrival of Rochambeau. Rochambeau was a French general who arrived in the Americas in Rhode Island and brought with him 7,000 French regular troops to support the revolutionaries against France's biggest enemy, the English crown. And if for those of you who don't know, if it hadn't been for the French, we wouldn't be here today. Benjamin Franklin had raced in a, in a ship to France to get the financing in place to go to war with England. France, the king of France, showed up. Not only did he show up by issuing debt to the United States, was they committed troops. So money and people came from the French to the young colonies to enter into the Revolutionary War and help us in our effort to rid ourselves of the dominion and tyranny from the crown overseas. We kind of laugh at the French today. Those of us who, who study international politics and the wars of the last 30 years or 40 years go back to Vietnam and French Indochina and then on to Iraq and Iran and the, and the wars of the 90s. And we, and we talk about where are the French, where are the French. Well, folks, don't forget that in our earliest days, in our earliest hours, when time seemed the bleakest for the United States, which didn't exist, it was still the colonies, the French were there to help us. And then as we continued to grow beyond the coastal plain and across the mountains into the Midwest and the Deep South, we had the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the size of the United States, and the Louisiana Purchase was between the United States and France. We can't forget how meaningful that relationship is. Though today we talk about Great Britain, Great Britain and the Crown being our biggest ally, it hadn't always been so, but France was there in the early days, and we need to remember that. Last week I talked about what was going on in Raleigh and Representative David Lewis's announcement of his retirement, and where I get what Lewis has meant in the General Assembly for Republicans and his leadership, many people probably went right over their head. He has been a stalwart when it came to election law, election law reform, redistricting, just so many different pieces of electoral law that occurred in the General Assembly over the last 10 years. He's been there for 17. As chairman of the Rules Committee, Everything that happened in the North Carolina General Assembly had to cross his desk. So him leaving is a really, really big deal. And I talked about the three or four people that I thought were going to step up and throw some elbows to mix it up and become the next kind of junior leader, if you will, in the North Carolina General Assembly. And one name I missed. So while the chess game of politics was going on, 
there was a different person that was lining up. His name is Destin Hall. Destin Hall is from Cleveland County, I think. He is not Cleveland County, Caldwell County. Young, part of the youth movement in the Republican Party, certainly in the youth movement in the North Carolina General Assembly, and was appointed yesterday by Speaker Moore as the co-chairman of the Rules Committee, clearly positioning himself to take over the Rules Committee should the Republicans remain in control of the North Carolina House, which I fully anticipate that they will. A little bit about Hall, he currently chairs the House Elections and Ethics Law Committee. Pay attention. Rules and elections seem to be tied together. What's going to happen in 2021? Redistricting and reapportionment, election law. So it's coming right at us. And you can see the past. You can see it being telegraphed as even the Speaker's office and members of the General Assembly are moving characters around, the pieces around inside the General Assembly, preparing for the battle that is yet to come. He's a member of the House Redistricting Committee, the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Criminal Matters. He's a primary sponsor of some bipartisan election law from 2020 and a constitutional amendment protecting crime victims. He is, by reputation, has a big backbone and is willing to stand up. And as I mentioned at the launch of this episode, we need some folks that are prepared to go toe-to-toe, face-to-face with the opposition as happy warriors that, that, that recognize that we have a battle in front of us and are willing and able to take on the job that we have because our communities, our society as we know it, is depending on it. So really, really interesting movement in the North Carolina General Assembly. Let's talk a minute, since we talked about election law, let's lob out there again the Census Bureau. We're in the middle of our every 10-year census. We count all the heads in the United States. We tell the we report back to the states how many people, how many residents they have, and then the states then take that information and reallocate and redistribute, if you will, redistrict their North Carolina General Assembly districts, and counties then can redistrict their boards of county commissioners. And if the municipalities are districted, they have the ability to redistrict based on these population shifts. Well, the same thing happens in the Congress, the U.S. House of Representatives. Every 10 years, the Census Bureau reports back and Congress reallocates through what's called reapportionment the membership of the U.S. Congress, the U.S. House. And so a state like California, which has had a mass exodus over the last 10 years, will lose membership in Congress. States like Texas and North Carolina will pick up congressional seats. I've written for the last probably two or three years about North Carolina's position in this, and that I anticipated picking up at least one member of the U.S. House, and perhaps two. And then I got very bullish and said, we get two. And then I waned on that and said, we're back to one. And if we get lucky, we get two. I had a conversation last week with a friend uh, at the North Carolina School of Demography, and we were talking about preliminary results. They're about 60% done here in North Carolina. Talk to another friend that does some work for the Census Bureau and indicated that our numbers are looking better or better as compared to other states. And that led me back to an earlier post that I had on Facebook from a year or two ago that we may actually end up with two additional seats in Congress. That is phenomenal. 
What does it mean? What does it do? Well, it actually increases our profile, increases our influence in Congress. The ability to take North Carolina values to the U.S. House of Representatives, rather than California values being mandated to us. And that's really significant. The second thing that it does is it increases our position in the Electoral College. I happen to be a Republican member of the Electoral College for 2020. The Republican candidate, Donald Trump, wins North Carolina. I will be invited to the the Electoral College convening in the state capitol, and I'll sign the book and cast my ballot for Donald Trump, as will 15 other people, two that are elected across the state and one from each congressional district. I'm in the ninth congressional district. So we go from 15 members of the Electoral College to 17. Now, you tell that two points, that doesn't make, I mean, two votes, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Actually, it does, because not only are we a swing state when it comes to presidential politics, but it also makes us a swing state, which is winner take all. And it makes this state more and more important when it comes to presidential elections. And look at where this is breaking out 2024 and 2028. We have some very significant elections taking place, not just this year, but then in the 2024 election, which will be very, very significant. And we will take a more prominent role in that 2024 election if we pick up those two new seats in Congress. There's some unintended consequences with those benefits, though. When you look at that, how are those maps drawn? If the Republicans don't maintain majorities in the House and Senate, then redistricting becomes under the control of those which don't share the same ideology as we do. And they will redraw those districts in a fashion that aren't compact. Go back and look at the last time Democrats drew districts. You had Mel Watt's district that ran up the northbound lanes of I-85. They weren't compact. They weren't legal. The Republicans were able to draw compact districts to the degree that the maps would be allowed to do it and maintain the balance, 799,100 people in each congressional district. But when you go to add two new districts, or even one, a certain number of members of Congress are going to get gerrymandered, which is not a bad word. So you look at the Mountain District, District 11. Do they push that further back into the mountains? Or do they split the mountains in half? And you have Virginia Fox District move down to the Virginia state line, and you have the the 11th District move up into Shelby in Cleveland County. So Madison Cawthorn, if he's victorious this fall, his district would, would butt up on the South Carolina state line. It makes things really interesting when you look at the central part of the state and the metropolitan areas, because we have Patrick McHenry, we have Richard Hudson, we have Ted Butt, and we have um, Dan Bishop, all of which are, are very, very close together. How do they draw those maps? Oftentimes, what you end up with is a double booking. Alma Adams District, which is the 12th, makes up the bulk of Mecklenburg County, including the, the dominant number of Democratic precincts. Could they split that in half and have two very dilutive congressional districts? Or do they bring in the 8th from Concord into the the eastern part of Mecklenburg County like it was 10 years ago. We just don't know. But what does happen in that process is the first election after redistricting, 2022, we often have voters voting for members of Congress that they've never voted for. And it creates, quote, the open seat scenario. Even though there's the power of incumbency, oftentimes you get some competitive primaries that bubble up out of that 
as members of the General Assembly and other business leaders and community leaders start to take a look at, is there an opportunity for me to serve my community in a different way? So I want to go to Congress or I want to participate in the legislative process in Raleigh. Now I have an opportunity because we have new voters, voters that have never voted for the incumbent, if you will. So there's huge opportunity and there's a lot of jockeying that goes on behind the scenes when that happens. So as the Census Bureau reports back in the, in the fall, it's supposed to do it by December 31st. They're pushing to push to get an increase in time so they can go through the first quarter. No, no. They're supposed to report back. Let's see if they actually do it. So huge things happening in just the granular part of, of politics, stuff that makes me excited, might bore you to tears, watching the chess pieces move around on the table. So we have redistricting and reapportionment. We have election law. We have, we have a, a campaign for president, senate, and governor all going on at the same time that have dramatic impacts and influence over the next 10 to 20 years of the political landscape in North Carolina. And I haven't even talked about judges yet. If, you, if you're aware of redistricting over the last 10 years, we know that every time we drew a map, the Democrats took us to court. Every single time. It is imperative that we as conservatives understand that this isn't a single front war. We're not just battling the Democrats to take control or maintain control or increase control in the U.S. Senate, in the U.S. House, or in the General Assembly, but courts are important. And as we talk about the courts of appeals and the North Carolina Supreme Court, we do that, but we neglect to talk about superior court. Are you familiar or do you remember all these election laws when you would read in the paper or you'd see the announcement that the Chief Justice has appointed the three-judge panel? And they would give the first pass at whatever the litigation was. Well, those three judge panels aren't appeals court judges. The Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court appoints three superior court judges to make up that three judge panel. So those superior court races that are way down ballot that we don't pay any attention to, pay attention to. Because they're going to be really, really important and influential as we look at the rule of law and applied to the current situations, rather than the left and liberals legislating from the bench based on their worldview and not based on the North Carolina Constitution or its laws. So that, there's my tidbit on litigation and judges and politics and what does all that mean. So a little bit on the news. The U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate are trying to come up with another COVID relief bill. I've talked about it before. The Senate's trying to keep it under a trillion. The Democrats in the House wanted $3.5 trillion. And there are three big sticking points, actually four. First sticking point, unemployment insurance. The Senate wants to find a way to rein that down and to, and to create a more holistic approach that doesn't pay uninsured, uh, unemployed folks more to stay home than to go back to work. So it's something we got to pay attention to. It's a budget buster. The second, the Senate wants some kind of tort limitation that says that employers that open and go back to work cannot be held liable as long as they meet certain requirements if in the event that somebody gets sick. If you get sick, you need to be taken care of in your own environment, but we should not be holding core businesses and essential businesses accountable for 
opening their doors. I think of food processors all day long. They, they deliver the food to the grocery store so that you and I can eat. They need to be open. They have to be open to sustain our lifestyle. They deserve to have some level of protection. The second thing that's in that bill that the Democrats are really pushing on is how do we fund schools? Well, I'm a federalist. Education is a responsibility of the state. The North Carolina Constitution is in Article One. Everybody will get a K-12 education. The state of North Carolina needs to figure that out, not Congress. So they're trying to figure out how to push more money down to the states to facilitate the funding necessary for current education. We will save an education discussion for another day about whether schools should be open or not. I think it's a local issue. It should not be mandated by the state. And frankly, based on the data that I'm seeing, schools should be open. Personal opinion. I'm sure I'll get beat up for that. So send me an email or put it on Facebook or social media or come to my website. The other piece to this, which is dynamic and dramatic and deserves very a high level of intense discussion so that everybody understands why we should not do this. The House of Representatives is adamant that we come up with some way to provide state and local financial relief as state budgets are being blown up as a result of covid I listened to some material this morning that's talking about states that are having to furlough and lay off employees because so much of their tax burden is built on sales taxes. And I get it. I understand that. Or with incomes dropping, we're not getting an income tax. However, it's not the responsibility of the federal government to make up for shortfalls in the state. State governments need to make that determination on their own. I don't want to be sending my tax dollars to Washington, D.C., to go fix a budget problem because Kentucky didn't finance their retirement or state employee health plans appropriately. Whereas we have Dale Falwell, the best treasurer in the country, who is who has been cleaning up our, our long-term liabilities and positioned the state for success. Why should North Carolina taxpayers be, be sending their money to states that have not been nearly as diligent as the Republican-controlled General Assembly, former Governor Pat McCrory with the Carolina Comeback, and with Dale Falwell cleaning up our long-term liabilities associated with state employee, state employee health and retirement benefits. The North Carolina taxpayer shouldn't be held to a different standard to send that money somewhere else. We need that money here. Lower the federal income tax, and if you got to increase the state income tax, I'd rather it be here than raising the federal income tax and sending my money somewhere else. But to be clear, I'm not in favor of raising taxes at all. Federalism. So, so as, we, as we start to talk about state, we need to get an understanding about the, the coffers of the state of North Carolina. Receipts are probably down 25 or 30 percent. However, we've had an opportunity over the last six or eight years to really pay off a lot of debt. We paid off the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund. We put a billion dollars or two billion dollars into the rainy day fund. The governor refused to sign a budget. And little did we know at the time as we were so angry with him for not signing the budget, he actually did us a favor because the budget threshold spending limits were established two years ago. And all that extra income, extra money that went into the coffers of the state has just been sitting there unallocated. Providing the North Carolina General Assembly with the resources that they needed to do little mini-budget fixes, very targeted appropriations to meet very specific needs. Whether we like them or not, 
the best one that comes to mind or the one that comes top of mind is the DOT bailout. Until they fix things at DOT, we shouldn't be sending them a lot of money. They needed some money to get roads completed. They were able to do a mini appropriation straight into the Department of Transportation, straight into education. So so I'm picking a different one when I talk about education. So there's lots of little things that they can do to provide the necessary funding. In In the election bill that they passed in May, there were some mini budget allocations in there to to add some revenue that was going to be necessary for these other needs that were going to occur as a result of COVID. I want to talk for a minute about some things that are coming out coming at us that we need to start thinking about and being prepared for. The governor in North Carolina issued an executive order outlawing um, disconnections for failure to pay utility bills and an inability to evict tenants who had not paid rent due to COVID, lost work. The President of the United States was doing the same thing in federally subsidized housing. Those moratoriums expire now. And the process may begin to evict families where they are way behind on their rent and utilities where the bills are not getting paid. I read yesterday that Duke Energy is going to allow families to spread the shortage, if you will, what they were behind out over 12 months to create an equal payment plan to not shock the system, not cut off utilities, but allow families an opportunity to catch up. Rent seekers, landlords need to do the exact same thing. I can imagine nothing more horrific than mass homelessness as a result of the moratorium expiring for uh, evictions. So we have to come up in a public-private solution that protects us from rampant homelessness and preserves family, the family unit and protects the integrity of the family unit. Government cannot be expected to do this on their own. It is going to involve philanthropics and it is going to involve the private sector to protect all of our communities. This is a real challenge moving forward. I've sent a number of pieces of information on this up to some friends of mine on the Charlotte City Council. I got two with with Ed Driggs and Tart Bakari. And Larkin's a friend, even though we're on different sides of the aisle. But we got to find the answer to that. And the more combative we get, the more difficult it is. But, but note that I said government is not the solution. It's going to re- require a public-private and philanthropic partnership to resolve this issue as we normalize our economy and as employment begins to build in a post-COVID environment. I threw a lot at you today, and I thank you for the opportunity. As I said when we started off, this is an exciting time for me. It's exciting for me to do this. It's been a real learning experience and funny. So if you got some ideas for me, feel free to hit my website, Right Course with Dan Barry, and uh, shoot me a note. Many of you have my email address. Go to my social media pages. Uh, I'm on Facebook, and Friends of Dan Barry is my political page. So feel free just to, to pass on your thoughts. Again, share this information with your friends. Share my, my podcast with your friends. Put, put it on social media and help me build an audience. Thank you very much for your time today. Now go make it a great week. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast through your provider and invite your friends to join us. Of course, look us up on the web at Right Course with Dan Barry. 
where we have additional content, blogs, and other items for you. We look forward to seeing you again and make it a great week.